You're listening to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Hello, everybody, and thanks for listening. Just a little over two days until the 2016 U.S. Open begins, and we've got a special edition of the podcast for you guys today. We'll hear from longtime Tennis Channel columnist Steve Flink. We'll also hear from Tennis TV commentator Robbie Koenig and ESPN's Brad Gilbert a little later on in the show. We'll preview the exciting storylines, break down the draws, and generally drool over the myriad possibilities that await us in New York. But first, because it has been such a long and trying tennis season, one that has featured a few too many heartbreaking stories, we're going to take a moment to purge all the demons of the 2016 season so that we may be ready to embrace the year's final major with open arms. got banned Nobody could understand Paris was so cold Federer was looking old Rafa hurt his wrist Back fell at Wimbledon. Nobody knew what to say. Nothing was going tennis's way. Huh. Okay, okay, okay. Hopefully that helped everybody purge their tennis demons so that we may jump in on the 2016 U.S. Open with renewed enthusiasm and vigor. With that in mind, let's touch base with Tennis Channel columnist Steve Flink. In addition to his great work for Tennis Channel, Steve is the author of the book The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, which is published by New Chapter Media. We highly recommend that you grab a copy of that at Amazon. Steve is one of the more revered tennis historians in the business, and he's covered the U.S. Open every year without fail since 1971. U.S. Open, um... Just a couple offbeat questions a little bit. Puig and Del Potro were the breakout stars of the Olympics, obviously, for many reasons. Uh, I just wanted to know what you thought of their chances of coming up with a follow-through in New York. Um, Murray comes to mind as a player who sort of parlayed Olympic success into a slam run. Uh, any other examples in your memory banks of players that kind of rode that Olympic wave? And then, and then your thoughts on Puig and Del Potro. Yeah, well, as far as the Olympic wave, it's just interesting to look at the last couple because those were both, not this year, but 08 and 12, because in both cases, in the men, you had you look at it, it worked out very differently. Nadal had won the French Open and Wimbledon in 08, and he was having a banner year, and he goes on to Beijing, wins the Olympics, but he came to the U.S. Open, and he was just debilitated, thoroughly exhausted. Mm-hmm. He ended up losing to Murray in the semi, so in many ways, I think the Olympics maybe cost him the U.S. Open because it was just too much big-time tennis in a short span from the end of May into September. But in 2012, with Andy Murray, 
that was remarkable. I mean, he still he won the Olympics over Federer, who had beaten him in the Wimbledon final, and then came to the U.S. Open, still not having won a Grand Slam event, and beat Novak Djokovic in a five-set final. So it worked very differently those two times. And that's why I'm curious to see can Murray pick up again this year, as he did now. Of course, he's more confident and more even more established, and, and we've seen what an incredible year he's had in 2016. I just wonder whether maybe he, he might be a bit worn out this time. I don't know. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. really interested to see what Murray is able to do as a, as a follow-up uh, because he put so much effort into the Olympics and came away with his, his second goal, which was, which was a, 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 just an astonishing achievement. It was. And, uh, now to Puig. Now you mentioned Puig and oh, Del Potro. Let's get to them. Uh, very different cases. Del Potro won the U.S. Open 2009. He, he's obviously had all. He's had these three surgeries on his left wrist. He's had all these inordinate number of struggles on that side. And so he he astounded everyone by getting to the final in in uh, in the Olympics this summer, starting with his win over Djokovic and eventually beat Nadal in the semis and lost that hard-fought final to Murray in four sets. So uh, he it has history, some history on his side of knowing that he can do it at a big event. And he, and, and he knows that a lot of people thought he was going to become number one before all of his wrist struggles in, uh, unfolded. And so I think he, he, can, he, he picks up a lot having just reached the final. Puig, that was something that was a new and exciting and highly unexpected experience for her to knock up all his top players, including Kvitova and, uh, you know, going on in the finals to beat Kerber. So she had two big wins in a row at the end and, uh, she could never have anticipated that she was going to win the gold medal. I think I'm concerned about her at the open, frankly, I hope she poos me wrong, but I think she's going to have feel a certain amount of pressure to live up to the billing to live up to what she uh, uh, achieved at the Olympics, because now everybody's going to be looking at her. She snuck up on everybody in a lot mm-hmm. of ways at the Olympics, and and, it was, and nobody right through the right through the finals against Kerber. Nobody, every, it, there was never a stage where people thought she could really sustain that, and she did. And That's she played amazing. spectacular tennis. I think she has the game to be a very big threat in New York, but I don't know whether she can deal with the burdens, the expectations. I hope for her sake. The draw is kind and maybe enables her to get through those first couple of rounds and and uh, come out unscathed and then sort of find her bearings in New York because she certainly has the the hard court game as we saw at the Olympics to to play do, do very well in New York to win it I can't quite see that but boy I, if she if her form was good and she got through those first couple of rounds and managed to get her confidence I could see a decent run I just hope she doesn't. There are, you know, all of the press attention, and there'll be TV interviews and fellow players gunning for her now. Can she deal with that? That's going to be a tough assignment for her. Yeah, as an unseated player as well, which maybe could play psychologically on her a bit, maybe positively. Like she yeah, can now still that, feel that, like an underdog. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, Chris, that's unfortunate because there should have been points. At the, in my view, I think it was a mistake. Ugh. In 2012, there were ranking points for the players. It, now Puig had got; she should have gotten a lot of points out of out of the Olympics, and so should have Del Potro. Both mm-hmm. of them could yeah, really have used those points. Del Potro trying to come from 141 at the time, and Puig, you know, here she is in the the 30s, and she she could have made a move well inside the top 20 had she been rewarded properly for what she did at the Olympics. I feel sorry for her on that because that would have given her a very safe seating in New York. 
You're listening to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast presented by Tennis Express, and we're talking with Tennis Channel columnist Steve Flink. Just as a note, Monica Puig did eventually receive a seed at the U.S. Open. She slipped into the number 32 seed when Sloane Stevens pulled out of the draw on Friday. You almost segued me perfectly when you were discussing Andy Murray before, um, so I want to kind of circle back to that. Most people seem to believe that Novak is, you know, the favorite on the men's side, despite a few uh, hiccups this summer at Wimbledon and at the Olympics, but Murray seems to have the momentum. Uh, men's tennis has pretty much been the Andy Murray show since Roland Garros ended. Um, ended. Do you sense a little bit of a changing of the guard on the horizon, do you, or do you think Novak maybe just needed a breather and you expect him to kind of take care of business in New York? I lean more toward the latter because I think that it, despite the, the shock loss that Djokovic had to query at Wimbledon where he really didn't play well and he looked nervous and he looked hurt, I don't know what was going on there. He did come back in between and won the Canada Masters 1000 event. It was played pretty well there. Then he got mm-hmm. caught off guard by a brilliant Del Potro. That was the worst draw he could possibly have had. I'm not sure anybody else could have done that to him. And he might well have gone on to win that title if he could have just played his way in. So it's it's sort of hard to hard to call in terms of how he's going to play. My feeling is if he if he gets going early on, I mean he I, he should be he he should be excited in the early rounds of the Open and very eager to defend his title. The the further he goes, the harder he'll be to beat. And I just think the that Andy, who's been in seven straight finals since he lost to Novak in the Roland Garros final, he hasn't beat mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't beat Novak. And Djokovic has won thirteen of the last fifteen and so I'm I'm not saying that as a knock on Andy. He's beaten everybody else and he beat who he had to beat at, when it was necessary. But I think Correct. a little a little win might have been taken out of his sails by losing that final in Cincinnati to Chilich. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad loss and he was more than entitled to have it, but I think he could have really there could have been even more of an aura around him if he pulled that one off and came into New York having not lost since Paris. But he still put out a lot of effort. I think ideally he wouldn't have been playing a week of tennis in Cincinnati after the Olympics. He would have been training and just practicing. So I, I And meanwhile, Djokovic will be rested. He didn't go to Cincinnati. Maybe he's had almost a little too much time off. But all I'm saying is if it comes down to Djokovic versus Murray in the finals, I like Djokovic. Yeah. Do you, you think that Novak's decision to skip Cincinnati was uh, the right one and probably makes him a tougher animal in New York? It could well. I mean, you've you got to believe that Novak will be physically uh, replenished. He'll be, you know, the revitalized in a way. On the other hand, I thought since that was a first-round loss to Del Potro at the Olympics mm-hmm. that he, he might want to go to Cincinnati, that there would the energy would have been there, I would have thought. But he he told Cincinnati that he had some kind of a problem with it, with his left wrist, and I'm sure that would he I'm sure he knew what he was doing to not go play there, and he's played a ton of tennis over the course of the season, yeah. so he ought to be uh, the, the, he ought to be really highly charged and motivated and ready to go in New York, and I think he can use those first couple of rounds. It's hard to see too many people floating around in the early rounds of the Open that can threaten him deeply, and therefore by the time he got to play another seated player in the third round he should be sharp and and eager and on his way mm-hmm. and switching gears a bit you told me at Wimbledon you were on a streak of 40 consecutive Wimbledons what what is your U.S. Open streak 
<laughs> well, I missed the 1970 U.S. Open. Oh, uh, how could uh, you? Uh, how could I do such a thing? I mean, <laughs> I was going as a fan from when you know, crossing amateur years into open year from 65 through 69. I missed 70. I've been to every open since 71 and covered every open since 74. So, oh my God, I, I have even a longer record there. I'm I'm proud to say. You're my hero. All right, so so you're with all your U.S. Open knowledge and wisdom. I, I just wanted to share something with you. I'm having a little bit of a difficult time getting over grandstand and sort of accepting this new grandstand. Um, it's my favorite show court, maybe in all of tennis. Uh, I just wondering if you felt the same way. Has, has it been difficult for you to make that transition? And have you been over to the grounds, looked around? What do you think of the new one? Haven't. Didn't get a chance to go when they had a big press gathering in early August, and I figured I'd save it for just being out there, you know, when I go to the draw tomorrow. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. And I can only say that I shared your view entirely in those early years at Flushing Meadows, 78 on, right up, you know, until say 90 through 96, and then of course in 97, Arthur Ashe Stadium. We 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 moved to Arthur Ashe Stadium, and then Armstrong eventually was chopped down and. I've still enjoyed the grandstand a lot, but it was really those earlier years, those first 20 years, and maybe even more so the first 10, that I thought it was just, it was idyllic. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I watched so many matches over there that I enjoyed immensely. And it, it did have the, a certain character that maybe no other show court at, at any major has had. But I, I kind of mm -hmm. got over it once once the, once the we shifted in and, and suddenly Armstrong became... I, Armstrong sort of took over for me in a way when it was chopped down to 10,000. I began to enjoy that court a lot more. And I mm -hmm. found myself not watching as much in the grandstand because suddenly it was the third most important court instead of the second. So you weren't really getting as many uh, right. players of note going on there. You got some good matches, but not the way it was in the early years. Those early years, it was it was just captivating. Mm, yeah, that that catwalk though, that view is just uh, just one of a kind, or it was one of a kind. In the grandstand. Yeah, being up top and kind of looking down. Oh yeah, at the court that was just... wonderful. Yeah, it was. But I have a I have a feeling, just judging by the photos, and I'll take a a, a much closer look tomorrow, that this new grandstand is going to be first rate, and it's going to change the dynamic of the of the, the entire dynamic of the U.S. Open. Get more people moving over to the far end of the grounds and not having everything pushed, you know, not having everything before when we had Ash, Armstrong, and the grandstand, mm -hmm. and the traffic in that area could be substantial. I think now you're going to have people floating around the far end of the grounds more, and it's going to, I think it's going to add to the appeal of the tournament tremendously. For sure, yeah. It seems like they've done a lot of great things at the grounds, for, definitely. So we're thankful for that. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, enjoy the Open, and we're going to talk with you soon. All right, Chris. Well, thanks Thanks for having me on. That was awesome. Tennis Channel columnist Steve Flink, who always brings a wealth of tennis knowledge to the table. Amazing that Steve will be attending the U.S. Open for the 46th consecutive year. Wow. Okay, we're going to turn the page now and have a chat with the one and only Brad Gilbert next. We caught up with Brad just after the U.S. Open draw was released, about an hour afterwards. Chatted a little bit about Juan Martín del Potro's chances, as well as taking a closer look at Novak Djokovic and 
what he might be able to do in New York. But before we got into those topics, we had to discuss Serena Williams' very tricky first-round matchup with former U.S. Open semifinalist Ekaterina Makarova. Let's hear Brad's take on that. I think it's a tricky first-round draw. It's one of those matches if Serena's right. I think she gets through that. I think it'll help her just immediately kind of have her antennas up right away in, in the draw. I mean, I just think, I mean, long as Serena is right in the shoulder, I mean, she should be okay. Yeah. But, you know, basically, you know, I, I, I mean, I would feel better if I watched her practice, you know, or, or see where she's at. But I know one thing, I never underestimate Serena when she's in one of these big tournaments. Yeah, that's for sure. Gunning for 23. SW23, yeah. would you say? SW23 trying to, trying to pass death. <laughs> um, I have a big picture question about Novak. This would be fun to yeah. hear your take. Um, you know, he's a lot of people after he won the French were thinking 17 was, of course, not a lock, but a very good possibility. But, you know, he's only got two more majors before he turns 30. Do you think it's critical that he wins at least one, maybe both of those, if he's really going to have a shot? Because, as we know, Lever and Rosewall were the only guys who won more than two after turning 30, and that was a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, well, Rosewall won three, right? Um, I don't know that Labor won more than two, did he? I think his Grand Slam happened when he was 30. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, let's just say, uh, you know, past, like, 73. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, since 73 on, the most slams after 30 are... Connors has two, and Agassi has two. Yeah. So, so since '73 on. So, but I will say I'm going to preface it by saying, albeit 30 isn't the same as 30 like a long time ago. Now, I mean, these guys are, you know, obviously Andre got to the finals of U.S. Open at 35. Fed got to the final last year at 34. I mean, guys are, you know, I mean, Tom Brady's still amazing at 39. Team sports different, but guys are playing a lot better in their 30s. But until somebody and Serena set a standard that's, you know, beyond, you know, what anybody's ever done, you know, you know, being number one and slams and all that. I mean, you know, so her, her success in her early 30s is arguably her best tennis of her career. Um, but it's yet to be determined if that can be done in the men's. Yeah, well, um, the... You know, but I wouldn't put it past Murray and Joker to, to, to play great until they're, you know, 33, 34. Yeah. It's what did what did it take for Andre to do it at that age? You, obviously, Novak is committed, so I guess it's. Um, well, I, I think that Andre played a great controlled offense, and his game wasn't based upon ha- having this amazing speed. So he, he actually did a good job of maintaining his speed. But like I said, you know, you know, when a guy's really fast and you lose a step, it can dramatically affect you. So I just think that Andre even started maybe hitting the ball crisper, cleaner, and a little even more aggressive. But I think that his game was suited for him getting older because it wasn't predicated on on amazing defense and movement. Yep. Interesting. So but would you say that if Novak doesn't get at least one of the next two, that all bets are off? Well, 
So the last question, we were wondering where Juan Martin Del Potro was going to show up, and now he has shown up. I'll brief you quickly on where he's at. He's no, got... I got it right in front of me, and it's kind of interesting that Steve Johnson said about that maybe they ought to not give him a wild card because he could play, you know, a, a top-ranked American. Yeah, it's not unreal. So he's got... Diego Schwartzman, which is a nice draw, first round, to play Steve Johnson second round, and Ferrer's kind of struggling at, at, at the moment, and the, I mean, uh, 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 one of those matches, okay, playing Johnson, who was playing very well in the Olympics, yeah. I mean, that could be a popcorn second round match. You're listening to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast, sponsored by Tennis Express. We are chatting with ESPN commentator and former world number four, Brad Gilbert. Here, Gilbert breaks down Juan Martin Del Potro's chances in the 2016 U.S. Open men's singles draw. That would be probably sure a second-round night match, but if he were to get through that draw, I could easily see him, long as he stays healthy, navigating for a good run. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think Johnson's second round, though, is not going to be an easy draw. I think that, you know, I, I got to see him, you know, in person and stuff. But I, I got that as a popcorn second round match. But if he were to get through that match, I think he could have a good run. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think he, he would be happy with the draw. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right. Johnson's going to be highly motivated for that. Um, how impressed have you been about what he's been able to do in the second half of this season? And do you think he'll hold the number one American spot for a while? Um, I mean, amazing that after he lost in, uh, I don't even know how to say it, Sir Hogan, Dojan, Bajan, or, you know, the tournament in Holland. Yes. I mean, he played the worst match I've seen him play in losing like three and three to Kozlov. Yep. And... And he was six and fourteen on the on the year, and really struggled. Then the next week, somehow he gets his first, I believe, top ten win of his career over Gasquet when he was down like five one when they were on like two or three rain delays, and he gets through that match, gets to the quarters, and then won the next week. So he went from a low point of losing to Kozlov to like I think he's like twenty one and seven since then. Yeah, and. You know, four three thirty love in the third set serving against Murray. You started to think, man, he's got a good chance to upset Murray, and who knows where he could go. But he he's completely, you know, started to play. 
I think it's taken him a long time to be comfortable with, you know, where he is and what he's doing. And this is a guy that won so much in college that I think he struggled coming out here on tour and, and not winning as much. And maybe, you know, he even said himself he was kind of questioning if he was good enough to be at this level. But his serve, forehand, and movement, you know, are... are I think, you know, gives him a legitimate chance to be a top 15 player. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Brad, that's good enough for me, man. I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to say, one of my favorite teams in all of tennis is you, Killer Cahill, and Chris Fowler. I look forward to sitting down and watching you guys for the next two weeks. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate the love, man. I bet you got a little better weather now in NorCal. A little cloudy this morning, but can't complain. <laughs> okay, buddy. Take care. Okay, thanks a lot. Have a good one. You're listening to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast, sponsored by Tennis Express. Next up, we'll chat with tennis TV analyst and former U.S. Open men's doubles semifinalist, Robbie Koenig, to find out whether or not we will see Phenomena Doll at this year's U.S. Open. Good morning, Robbie. Nice to chat with you. Always nice to catch up, Chris. U.S. Open time. And, uh, yeah, some interesting stuff is uh, unfolding. A very good time of year. Finally, the last major is here. Uh. It is, and it's been teed up beautifully, of course, coming into the tail end of the season, certainly as far as the men are concerned. And uh, I'm very much uh, looking forward to how things shake out. Yeah, I, I know a lot of our listeners will be excited to hear your take on some of the bigger storylines. Maybe we'll get started with the one of the biggest one on the men's side, which is uh, Andy Murray's coming in in fantastic form right now. Lots of confidence, but some are starting to believe he might be a little overcooked, maybe overplayed. He's done so much in the last couple of weeks with the Olympics and Cincinnati. And then on the other hand, we've got Novak Djokovic coming in lacking form and also hinted yesterday that he's struggling with a wrist problem uh, based on what you see in the draws and what you've heard from these players and seen from them this summer had which player you think has a leg up um i still uh, i'll start with murray um you know last year i think he came into the u.s open a little overcooked but i think he had a decent rest after wimbledon and, and I believe that it was important for him to play Cincinnati. I think had he not played Cincy, he might not have had enough matches under his belt. So I think that might have been a problem. I think Murray will be fine. I think he's had a good week off now. He would have tailored the practicing to suit him. And he would have rested up enough. He had some good base training after Wimbledon as well, leading into the uh, uh, Olympics. So I think you'll find that his schedule will be just spot on. As far as Djokovic is concerned, uh, the injury concern over the wrist um, does bother me somewhat. But for those people who are just ignoring everything that he's done over the last six or seven months, uh, I don't think that's right. You're always going to have the odd upset throughout the course of a season. I think the loss at Wimbledon to Query was always going to be, for me, if he wanted to complete the, the career, the calendar, should I say, Grand Slam, Grass was always going to be the toughest surface. It's the one surface that it's the toughest to defend on. And if you come up against somebody who's swinging from the hips and has got the firepower and has got nothing to lose, 
just like Sam was in that match. It almost created the perfect storm for him. And, you know, I'm not surprised that that he lost at Wimbledon in the end. I always thought it was the poten- potential banana peel. But for me, he's still the, the favourite coming into the US Open, despite the fact, you know, he's lost a couple of matches of late. Del Potro at Rio, I mean, Del Potro's a proper player. You've got to keep that in mind. It sure is. Um, and it was, it was a close match, but I don't think that's the end of the world. If you have a look at Djokovic's um, record on hard courts this season. I think going into Rio, he'd only lost one set, and that might have been against Fratangelo mm. in Indian Wells. Yeah. So you've got to keep that in mind. We've got to keep some perspective here. But one thing that we can't answer for is the severity of the injury, and we'll have to see how that plays out in the first week. Yeah, I was kind of surprised yesterday to hear him talk about it. And I was gonna, I was gonna ask you your thoughts on that. Um, why would he talk to the press about this? We've heard Novak, or we've heard Rafa rather, kind of be criticized for being so open and honest about injuries. Why do you think Novak would go public? Does he just figure he has nothing to lose, or does he figure um, that it really doesn't matter what what people know about him? But even went so far as to manage that he'll say that he'll struggle a little bit on the backhand side. Yeah, it is an interesting point, isn't it? Um, you know, is it a case of perhaps giving himself an excuse if he comes up short? Uh, you never know with these guys. But I think it's a case of I've got nothing to fear. It is something that has been a bit of a niggle at the moment for me. And you know what? If I want to win this tournament, I'm going to have to deal with it, plain and simple. Whether you know about it or not, it's going to be there. Um, and sometimes just being open with yourself is kind of easier than just trying to sweep everything under the carpet and trying to keep it hush-hush because, you know what, Chris, these things always come out sooner rather than later. Right. That's true. Well, so all, all focus seems to be on Murray and Djokovic right now, but um, now that we've seen the draw and had a good look at it, is there anyone else you see that has a shot of making a run here in New York? Well... I would like to see Raonic go deep. Um, I've been very impressed with the quality of tennis that he's played. Uh, I think he is probably the best of the rest. Um, you know, I know he spends a lot of time in and around the New York area now. You know, familiarity will start to kick in. So you've got to keep him in the back of your mind. I've been very impressed with Marin. Uh, the way he played in Cincinnati, that was Marin of old. You know, the injuries are behind him. He had problems at the start of the season, missing out a few of the Masters 1000s because of injury. And, of course, the feel-good factor. When you come back to a tournament where you've done well, when you walk through those gates, man, you have that pep in your step. That's the X factor. And he'll certainly have it. So those guys are both... In the same section of the draw as Djokovic, you've got Isner looming large. I wouldn't want to be playing him too early as well. <laughs> so he's in, a, he's in a pretty tough section of the draw is Djokovic. Yezhyanovic out of nowhere, first up. That's never easy. A guy with big firepower. That's the kind of player you never want to see as a top seed. You want to play someone who's predictable and whose game you can kind of uh, settle into. And, and Yanovic is not going to give him too much of that. So, you know, it's going to be tough for him. Um, on the bottom section of the draw, uh, my floater would be somebody like Nick Kyrgios if he can keep it together. I'd love to see Nick go deep. I think the, the New York crowd would warm to him because he's, he's got that bad boy image. You know, they can relate to him. Bit of Johnny Mack in him. Uh, so I'd like to see Nick go deep in that bottom section of the draw. But I think it's, it's Murray's to lose going through to the final. Mm. 
Back, backtracking a little bit to your comments about Raonic, um, first rounder with Dustin Brown. Uh, that should be wildly entertaining. Uh, how do you see that one shaping up? <laughs> no kidding, man. I mean, that's going to be great, isn't it? Uh, Dustin is such an entertainer. Um, but I still think that Raonic should be too consistent on this court. It'll be fascinating to see what speed uh, the courts are playing at. Because remember, historically, when I was playing, uh, US Open courts used to be the fastest hard courts throughout the entire summer. Yeah. Perhaps some of the fastest courts we used to play on the entire year. And I'd like to see them come back to doing that. So if they're playing nice and quick, I think Dutton can cause a little bit more damage. Right. If they're just your, your, regu- your regular medium pace hard court, you've got to go with Raonic. I think at worst case, you'll lose a set. You're listening to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast, sponsored by Tennis Express. We're chatting with tennis TV analyst Robbie Koenig. Next up, we will discuss the rise of Dominic Team in 2016. And then we'll talk a bit about Rafael Nadal's chances in New York. A player we didn't talk about yet, and you know it's strange, not a lot of people have talked about Dominic Team since the grass court season. He's maybe um, he's been criticized as, as well for, for overplaying this season, although I didn't don't think he really could have planned having so much success and having so many matches. Um, he's only won two of seven dated, dating back to the grass season. And I'm curious to get your take on on Dominic Team from what you've seen in Cincinnati. Do you think his best tennis is behind him this season, or do you think he shapes up to do a little damage in New York? I think his best results are always going to be on a clay court, uh, certainly early on in his career. The big challenge for him uh, to be a top five player consistently is going to be to play well on the hard courts. You've got to remember that only, what is it, four of the biggest tournaments that the top guys play are on clay. So you've got Monte Carlo, Rome, Madrid, and the French Open. So I can see him excelling every year on on those and maybe dropping down to play one or two of the other smaller ones. But as far as um, playing on a hard court is concerned, I think he can still get a lot better. And I think he's going to need to improve, learn to take the ball a little earlier, and just learn to be a little bit more proactive on the surface. Mm-hmm. Have we seen the best of him this year? That's a good question, Chris. I'm not sure I know the answer to that one. But I would think he's had enough of a rest now that he should be okay. He did pull out of Canada, had problems in Canada with a hip injury. Uh, I'm hoping that's okay. I'm a big fan of, of Dominic for many reasons, not just because he's such a great shot maker, because he is such a good person. He's such a good kid. And tennis needs guys like him around for as long as possible. So, you know, just having a look at his section of the draw, it's it's okay. It's not bad for, for a hard court. He's got Sam and Stevie Johnson in that section, as well as David Ferrer, who I think he could handle well. But uh, Juan Martín de Potro is the floater over there that, that could throw a spanner in his wheel. Yeah. Um, would I see him going through the quarterfinals? I think it'll be difficult for him. Mm-hmm. I think it will be difficult. I'll probably see him being a casualty before then. Yeah, that's, a, and, and that's an interesting section. You, you, as you mentioned, there's Kyrgios and Tomic could be heading for a third rounder. And we've got a Del Potro, Stevie Johnson possible second rounder. So there's going to be a lot of fun in that little quarter of the draw. Um, yes, very much so. Steve playing some good ball. Uh, obviously, from uh, your neck of the woods there, USC boy, and now that the top-ranked American, a lot of people 
uh, were giving me a hard time when I was commentating in Auckland this year. I was really impressed with the way Steve was playing. And I think, uh, I said, I think this guy can be top 20 this season at some point. And a couple of people raised their eyebrows at me. Mm. But I am so happy for Steve. Really good, hard worker. He manages his game so well. I often speak about this when I'm commentating, Chris. You know, his backhand is always going to be a, a weakness, a relative weakness. But he knows how to manage that shot under pressure. He's not trying to hit backhand winners down the line and change direction on his shots. He's very conservative. When the opportunity presents itself to use the forehand, that's when he goes for his shots. And it's so important as a good player to know how to manage your strengths and weaknesses. And he does that exceptionally well. Yeah, well said. And he's he's really turned his season around, and he is on the cusp of the top 20, so you're going to look good on that one to your friends in Auckland. <laughs> oh, man, I've got a lot of money riding on it. Uh, <laughs> depends on the quality of the holiday that so I'm pulling from big time. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> uh, last subject, but not least, uh, and we didn't talk about this member of the Big Four, Rafa Nadal. Um, Surprised us all by returning from a 73-day hiatus in Rio and really looking amazing. Didn't medal in singles, but got the doubles gold, of course, and and played some fantastic tennis. Um, do you think we'll see a little bit of Phenomenadal in New York this week? Yes, why not? Why not? He's got a decent section of the draw as well. Um, I think uh, you know his first big test will come up against somebody like Bautista Agut. Uh, but you can never count this guy out, man. For me, one of the greatest competitors our sport has ever seen. He's needed the rest. A couple of the boys were telling me, you know, he flew up from Rio with Andy. They came uh, in the same private plane. And um, the Murray camp was telling me he was exhausted after his exploits in Rio. So he's needed to rest up, um, which I think, you know, almost losing early in Cincinnati has probably served him well. Hopefully he doesn't have, uh, you know, too much fatigue now coming into the U.S. Open. But, you know, these guys should know their scheduling by now. They've been around a long time. Um, they should be well-rested. And I think he would have had enough tennis under his belt to feel good about himself going into the U.S. Open. Decent section of the draw, yes. He's got uh, the likes of Raonic and Monfils there. Uh, but he'll only have to play one of those guys. So, you know, that guy definitely could be going deep. Quarter semis, no problem. But I don't think getting past... Uh, Djokovic, if Djokovic gets that far, um, is going to be doable for him. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. You know, a lot of people weren't even, maybe maybe um, a month ago, people didn't even expect him to be at the U.S. Open, so he's made quite a bit of progress. Um, do you think he'll, he'll be able to grab another major, maybe another French Open? I think that's his best chance. Um, the question I always ask people, and, you know, especially Nadal fans, I say... You know, put your your heart aside for one minute, and I and I always ask them if it was all the money that you had, your house, every cent you have in your bank account, do you think he would win a major? Because I think that is the real question. And in my heart, I feel like there's less chance of that happening than more chance. I would say, you know, over the course of the year. Uh, you know, one out of the four majors, that is the French Open. So what is that? One out of four, 25% chance of that happening on a yearly basis. So that's how I would answer that one, Chris. Yeah. Uh, a lot slimmer chances now than before. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, there's not that money in my bank account. So maybe maybe next spring I'll take a chance on them. <laughs> you know, Chris, just before we sign off, um, uh, honorable mention to some of these young Americans coming up. Um, I was very impressed, and uh, I have been again this week with Jared Donaldson, who's come through qualies comfortably, played some good ball, 
in Cincy. I was very impressed with the way he took down Vavrenka. Great head on his shoulders. So uh, I'd hope for him to go deep. I thought Ryan Harrison's resurgence has been fantastic. And, of course, qualifying with his brother was a, a very nice touch. And uh, his dad must be very proud of the boys coming through there. I know uh, Ryan isn't so much a young gun anymore. Yeah. But nice to see him um, you know, coming back. And, of course, Taylor Fritz has got to play Jack Sock first up. So young uh, TF is going to have a, have his work cut out if he wants to, to do something meaningful in the U.S. Open. But I think it's fantastic from an American point of view. You know, America is such a big market. And, um, you know, if these guys can step up and start to show their metal starting this year, it'll be fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. You've got Taylor Fritz, who's done really well on tour for an 18-year-old this year. Francis Tifo has showed a lot of progress. Of course, back at Indian Wells, he held some match points against David Goffin. Unfortunately, he's got to run into John Inzer first round. But And, and you're right about Ryan Harrison. Just, um, just doesn't seem right that he's outside the top 100. He is a very talented player, very serious and committed to his tennis. I'd love to see him make a run and kind of get back into the swing of things. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So fingers crossed that uh, some of those guys show some good results because it's always fantastic when you have uh, some of uh, the local boys uh, in terms of Americans doing well at any major because it sparks so much interest within the media. And, of course, it helps generate interest in the sport for the youngsters you know, who want to follow in their footsteps. Yes, amen to that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Robbie. We'll uh, look forward to chatting with you a little bit down the line. Enjoy the U.S. Open. Thanks, Chris. Uh, always enjoy being on. Thanks again. Okay, cheers. You've been listening to the Tennis Now Tennis Podcast, sponsored by Tennis Express. And that's a wrap. Special thanks to our guests, Tennis Channel columnist Steve Flink, ESPN's Brad Gilbert, and Tennis TV analyst Robbie Koenig. You can listen to and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Or just stop by our website, TennisNow.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and enjoy the U.S. Open.